We often refer to the idea of following Jesus as uh, a journey. Uh, Some people refer to it as walking with Jesus. Uh, You may have heard people call it their Christian walk. Uh, We use words like your faith journey. All those terms are fine uh, and pretty accurately describe the experience of following Jesus. Because after all, if we're following someone, doesn't that imply that we're going somewhere, right? That we're moving in a direction somewhere. And if we're moving in a direction, and if we're moving forward, and if we're, uh, I think it stands to reason then that, that there's a path to follow. There's a road that we can walk on, and perhaps while walking on that road, Jesus sometimes walks ahead of us, right? Leading the way, where we can kind of see him up ahead. Uh, or maybe he's up and around the corner. We haven't quite got there yet. Maybe we can't see him. Maybe we can just hear his voice. Maybe it's a little bit foggy. And circumstances have made it a little foggy, but we're pretty sure he's still up there. We can hear him, but things maybe aren't as clear as they once were. And sometimes Jesus slows the pace and settles in next to us and walks with us. So I think all those are are experiences that we can have as we follow Jesus. But if we're going to follow this analogy all the way through, it's clear to me that at some point along the way, we're going to encounter some roadblocks some roadblocks that slow down our progress that might even result in a little distance between us and Jesus. Sometimes those roadblocks are of our own making. Uh, Sometimes they're the fallout of someone else's choices, but the result is kind of the same. So we're talking about some of the roadblocks that we might encounter even as we are committed to following Jesus, as we're trying to be faithful in our following. So I think, and I think you're here today because you want to follow Jesus. It's one of the reasons why we gather together, so we can be more devoted in our following of Jesus. Uh, We want to be more consistent. We want to be fully devoted followers of Him in a way that makes a lasting and eternal difference in in your life and in the lives of the people whose life yours touches. So no matter where you find yourself in your journey as a follower of Jesus, whether you've just started the journey whether you're deep into it, uh, maybe you've, you've probably, I'm going to guess, probably encountered some roadblocks, some experiences, some spiritual and emotional and relational challenges that slow your progress as a follower of Jesus, that maybe even created some distance between you and God. So as we continue to talk about roadblocks, I think you'll find some ideas through this series that you identify with. If you'll stay engaged, if you'll be honest and open, I think you'll be like, yeah, been there, done that. Or maybe, yeah, right, I'm there right now. Like this roadblock has really slowed me down. I'm not making the progress I really want to be making. You know, our hope is that by digging into some of these topics that we can begin to acknowledge and address some of the roadblocks and ultimately begin to move forward or to regain some of our spiritual momentum to keep moving forward as we follow Jesus. So bringing the roadblock analogy into our spiritual experience, into the thing we're talking about when we talk about following Jesus, I think we all understand and acknowledge that there are roadblocks in life. These roadblocks can bring our pursuit of spiritual and emotional health and wholeness and spiritual maturity to a grinding halt. And to get around these roadblocks, sometimes we have to turn back. Sometimes we have to be willing to take an alternate route to go around the roadblock. And ultimately, the goal is to get back on this road that we're just calling following Jesus. So we're calling this series Roadblocks Moving Forward. And whether you're with us here in person or you're joining us at church online or maybe you're watching on demand or listening to the podcast, thank you for being with us today. Through this series, we're talking about things like fear, and hurry, and shame, and labels, and insecurity, and comparison, 
And for the most part, as we tackle these topics, we're using the format of here's the roadblock, let's talk about what that looks like, what kind of impact that has on us and in our, on our journey with Jesus, and then let's talk about what it'll take to move around this roadblock and move forward as we walk with Jesus. That's kind of the format we're taking. And as a springboard for this series, we've, we're leaning into Galatians 5, verse 25, where the Apostle Paul says, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So we launched the series last month talking about the roadblock of cynicism. So we talked about cynicism and trust, uh, the, the, the roadblock of cynicism and the trust that we find on the other side of the roadblock. We define cynicism as an attitude that's characterized by a general distrust of the motives of others. And we said that cynicism, uh, this distrust of others, will bring your, fo- your progress as a follower of Jesus to a standstill. It just will. So we talked about the idea that trust is a choice. And you and I have a choice when it comes to cynicism or trust. And we got pretty practical uh, with some ideas about how to navigate around the roadblock of cynicism and to find a way to consistently lean into trust, trusting others, trusting the motivations of others, and ultimately trusting God with our whole lives. Because we know that if we are generally distrusting of people, we will also be generally distrusting of God. Then a couple weeks ago, Ben taught for week two of this series, and he talked about the roadblock of labels, that labels are a roadblock to love. And he reminded, and if you missed that, you want to go back and check that one out, but he reminded us that Jesus chose to see people, not labels. That Jesus acted in clear, intentional defiance of our notions of labels. He said that Jesus really only saw the labels to the extent that he purposely chose to act against the labels that he knew people were placing on their fellow humans. And Ben's bottom line in talking about labels as a roadblock to love is that labels and love are incompatible. Because labels are a roadblock to intimacy, to community, to knowing and being known. You can't love someone while you are labeling them. So if you missed his teaching from a couple weeks ago from April uh, 2nd, I encourage you to go to our website, click on the messages tab, watch that message, or check your podcast feed. So that leads us to today's topic. I'm curious if there have been any times in recent months, we could go as far back as, say, two to three years. Okay, that struck a nerve. Have there been any point in there when you felt overwhelmed? Okay. Maybe that's how you feel about life in general. Because like you got this health thing going on, or you, maybe you got a maybe a family member does, or you're struggling in your marriage, or maybe things are kind of uncertain at your job, or maybe all of the above on some level. Uh, maybe you're in this season and you're hoping this season will end soon, or or maybe it's just the story of your whole life, one thing after another, and basically you're stressed, like you're stressed all the time. Here's the thing. Stress can actually be a good thing if it's short-lived. It can be a, good, it can be a motivator if it's short-lived. But it can be a very bad thing because stress kind of pushes us to do things we don't want to do in ways that we wouldn't even otherwise think about doing them. And when stress gets amplified, it becomes anxiety, and then we get overwhelmed. All of us have seasons, have had, and will experience seasons where we are overwhelmed. Sometimes we allow ourselves to get overwhelmed by the accumulation of little things, like a bunch of little things. Like for most of us, work is a stressor. Am I right on that? Okay. If, like if, and here's, 
here's the thing. If work has historically been a stressor for you, chances are that's been amplified in the last, some point in the last three years. According to a study, and this was done pre-pandemic, according to this a study, work uh, causes stress for 83% of Americans. 83% of people in this room who are working jobs are stressed by work. And even if, you, if, if your work isn't causing stress right now, you've definitely had seasons where it has stressed you out, right? 40% of people say they've been unproductive in their job because of stress, because stress completely, I mean, it reduces our productivity. Let's see if you can identify with this one, and maybe you need to be careful how you react to this, but 14% of people, and I think it's probably higher than that, uh, the people surveyed said that they felt like slapping a coworker. <laughs> Don't look at that person across the room that you work with. That's not cool. But uh, <laughs> some of you are like, yeah, when I get up and go to work tomorrow, that percentage is going up. You know, I don't know. 14%. 25% it felt like screaming at a coworker. That's, that seems low to me. 18% have experienced some form of threat or verbal intimidation, probably from the 25% who felt like screaming. But, and 25% of all workers feel that stress reduces their memory and their focus. So it's a real deal. And again, that was pre-COVID. So I think if we were to do that study again, all those numbers would be way higher. So the question I want to ask this morning as we talk about this roadblock that we're calling overwhelm is what's overwhelming you? Don't answer out loud, but just sit in that for a second. What's overwhelming you? Like, if you think about it, you can probably put your finger on what's overwhelming you. And maybe you're sitting there like, my problem is like, I got this, and I got this, I got this other thing, and I got that, so take your pick. Like, they're all overwhelming me. Or maybe you're like, no, I'm in a pretty good season right now. I don't have a lot of that in my life. Things are pretty good. But you've had those seasons where you've been overwhelmed. Or maybe there's an area of your life where you're just like constantly overwhelmed. Maybe you get overwhelmed sometimes because of your pace. You're just like over-scheduled and over-committed. I don't know if you can identify with that at all, and you feel maxed out. So for some of you, relationships are the reason you're overwhelmed. You just don't know how to navigate that difficult or challenging relationship. For some of you, the stress is financial. It's just that's where it starts and ends. It's financial. Basically, you feel like you're always overdrawn because uh, you're always overdrawn and your credit cards are maxed out and you feel completely overwhelmed and you don't know what to do with that. Maybe, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Maybe social media is contributing to your overwhelm. Because your whole sense of, here's the thing, thanks for lightening the mood, because that was getting really uncomfortable, but here's the thing, because when, when our whole sense of identity and self-esteem and sense of accomplishment rises and falls with how we're doing on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, or whatever else you're on these days, sometimes like we even realize it's not healthy, but our compulsion is to pick up the phone and to look at our notifications, to post a few pictures from our most recent adventure that's going to put us in the best possible light, of course. But think about what technology is doing to us this way. And I'm not anti-technology at all. I love and embrace technology. But what is it doing to our souls? Like, what is our engagement with it doing in our relationships, in our marriages, with our kids, with our family life? So chances are, if none of those are your issues, uh, but you've got somebody in your life who's struggling in these areas, like somebody who's struggling with depression, somebody who's struggling with anxiety, somebody who maybe has driven them to self-destructive behaviors, maybe they've even thought about or attempted suicide. It's like, these things are like, this is the real deal we're talking about today. 
Um, I don't know, I'm not, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not an extrovert. I'm not naturally a people person, which is naturally why I wanted to become a pastor, because that made perfect sense. But I'm, I didn't have, God said, this is what you're doing. I'm like, I'm not sure that I've got the right, but anyway, that's another conversation for another day. I'm not an extrovert, but I'm not a people person, generally speaking. And uh, I thought you'd be surprised by that, but you seem to be, under, thank you. Appreciate the affirmation. I can count on you all the time, but now you know why I'm not an extrovert. But I'm, I'm not an introvert either. You're like, well, how you can't have it both ways? Yes, you can. Um, I, like, I, I, I need people. I need time with people. I enjoy people. I enjoy certain people <laughs> at certain times for certain lengths of time. I'm just being honest. I kid a little bit, but I'm letting you in here. I'm an ambivert, like, which basically means I have both extrovert and introvert tendencies, and that's where most people actually land. Sometimes, like, the last thing I want to do is be with people. Sometimes I just need to be alone. Sometimes I crave conversation. I crave a good conversation. Sometimes I want to hang out with my favorite people. You know who you are. So sometimes, so sometimes you're all my favorite people. Sometimes the presence of people stresses me out. Sometimes people are the answer to my stress, Okay. Here's the thing. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about the stressors of life. Those things that cause us to be overwhelmed, that, and that overwhelm becomes a roadblock to clarity that God wants us to live our lives with. Jesus has called us and invited us to what he calls a rich and meaningful life. Overwhelm keeps us from experiencing rich and meaningful. Clarity makes it possible. So that's what I want to kind of lean into today. I want to take a look at a couple of passages, about one about a, a, someone who wrote uh, before the time of Jesus, another person who was a contemporary of Jesus. The first is a very uh, famous biblical character named David. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, David from the story of David and Goliath, right? David was actually anointed to be king of Israel when he was really young, like probably a preteen. Uh, but he was a king in waiting because there was already a king uh, on the throne whose name was Saul. So David had to wait to become king until Saul either died or abdicated. That wasn't going to happen. So there was a period of several years where he had to wait to be king. And you would think that during that time that if God had already told you you were going to become king, that you would then have a pretty good life between the time he told you and anointed you until you became king. It seems like you would expect things would go pretty well. Because like you're the crown prince, you're king in waiting, but, but not for David. David wrote most of the Psalms, the Old Testament songbook, the songs that the, the ancient Jews used in their worship. In Psalm 142, David is in retreat, and he's terrified, and he's overwhelmed because God had promised over a decade earlier that he would be king, and the Goliath thing is sort of a fading memory, and now he's being hunted by King Saul He's pretty much hated, and he has a few people who are loyal to him, but Saul has his people out looking to kill David. So David feels completely overwhelmed, and the Bible describes the emotions that David was going through. In the book of Psalms, at times, it's kind of like David's journal. We see him writing about what he was feeling while he's, in this case, camped out in a cave. He's in this cave because he felt like everyone had abandoned him. He was terrified that he was going to die and die alone. And he felt very alone. So we have a record of his thoughts in Psalm 142. So you kind of get a picture of what was going on in David's head, what's going on in his emotions as a guy who was promised to be king, but 
now finds himself being hunted by the current king. So I'm going to read some verses from Psalm 142. This is verse 1. I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. Now, if you've ever wondered how to pray, maybe, maybe you pray, maybe you don't pray, I don't know. And you're like, I'm not sure I know how to pray or if I'm doing it right or how to say the words or I think I probably got it wrong and I get all tongue-tied. And the best way to pray is just to be honest. And if you've ever felt like, well, yeah, but I got to hold back a little when I pray because I don't know if God can handle that, uh, just read the Psalms. Like David is very, very honest about how he feels and he understands that God can handle this. So if you've ever been afraid to tell God how you feel, if you've ever been afraid to bring your problems to him, to, to bring your marriage to him, to bring your kids to him, to bring your emotional state to him, don't be afraid of that anymore. So here's David's honest prayer. I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour out my complaints before him. Did you know you can complain to God? I mean, we complain to everybody else. Why don't we complain to God? Just take it to God. I pour out my complaints before him and tell him all my troubles. When I am, here's our word, overwhelmed. When I'm overwhelmed, you alone know the way I should turn. So David's completely overwhelmed. And he just feels like there's no way out. God has probably abandoned him. Verse 3. Wherever I go, here's my situation. Wherever I go, enemies have set traps for me. Uh, verse 4. I look for someone to come and help me. Ever felt this way? And no one gives me a passing thought. Exclamation mark. No one will help me. No one cares a bit what happens to me. Now, we know that that's not entirely true. Because when you read the rest of the story of David in the Old Testament, you discover there are people who care about what happens to David. And God cared very much about what's happening to him, which might have caused David to say, well, if you care about what's happening to me, then why am I alone in a cave? Why do I have all these people trying to kill me? Like, explain that one, God. Like, uh, uh, but here's the thing. At least he took that to God. So like maybe you find yourself in a place where you've been running from God with those questions. Like maybe, maybe someone you love is running from God with all of these questions. And perhaps they're carrying all these big questions for God, but they haven't actually asked God. Maybe they're carrying them around thinking it's a good reason to not believe in God or to not trust God, but they haven't actually brought the questions to God. Instead, they just carry around the questions as they're running away from Him. And maybe you can identify with that as well. See, what David is doing is what I do when I'm overwhelmed and probably, probably what you do when you're overwhelmed. Because when you're overwhelmed, here's what's true. All you can see is the problem. When you're overwhelmed, like maybe you're fi you find something in your life, to, you're, you're overwhelmed with it right now. And all you can see is the problem. How are we ever going to pay all this stuff off? How am I ever going to pass this class? If I lose this job, I'll never find a better job. If this relationship doesn't work out, I'll probably be alone forever. Like when you're overwhelmed, all you can see is the problem. In fact, uh, if you were to graph this out on a diagram, if you're a Christian, and if you have some level of understanding of what God has promised, this, if you can show this mark, is, is, is what it might look like. So, so there's the promise of God. We see the promise of God right there. But then there's this giant problem. It's like, I know God says, you know, okay, I'm going to be with you and all that, but I don't really believe that right now because all I can see is the problem. And when you're overwhelmed, that's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. Because when you're overwhelmed, all you can see is the problem. And when all you can see is the problem, it's time to change the strategy. 
when all you can see is the problem, it's, start, it's time to start examining the promise. And that's what David did. David wasn't imagining the problem. There really were like soldiers out to kill him, and Saul wanted him dead. The problem was real. And so if you're like, well, don't make light of my deal. I got good reason for my overwhelm, okay? Things are not going well. They're not going well at work. Things are bad financially. My marriage is hanging on by a thread. My emotional and mental health is not good right now. If you only knew how much trouble I had just getting up and coming to church this morning. Listen, when all you can see and all you can feel is the problem, you are going to be overwhelmed. So I'm suggesting it's time to come back and refocus and reexamine the promise. That's what David did. This is why the psalm is so helpful. He lays out his big complaints like, here's my problem. It's a big one, God. Hope you can handle it. Then verse 5 of Psalm 142. Then I pray to you, O Lord. I say, you are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. I mean, do I want to be king? Sure. Who doesn't want to be king? I mean, you told me that when I was a kid. So I've just been thinking about that ever since. Like, yes, that would be great. Would I rather not be dead? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Would I rather not be hiding in a cave all alone? Yes. But I know enough about you to know that you are really all I want. Now, if you're not a Christian, I understand that probably doesn't resonate with you. Because you're like, really? Come on. God, God is all you want, really? But for David, he's saying, I know this to be true, that you really are all I want in life. But here I am in a cave. So let's talk about that. Verse 6. Hear my cry. For I am very low. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I'm overwhelmed. Rescue me from my persecutors, for they're too strong for me. Bring me out of prison so I can thank you. I love this. And the godly will crowd around me, for you are good to me. So what are we supposed to take from that? I mean, if that's you right now, whatever it is, whatever the circumstance looks like, maybe it's relational, maybe it's financial, maybe it's a health thing, maybe it's an internal thing, like how you feel about yourself, maybe it has to do with your relationship with God because you don't think that you can be forgiven like fully, you don't think you'll ever be good enough, which you won't, or whatever is overwhelming you. Like I obviously can't speak to every individual scenario, but here's a principle that some of us started leaning into a few years ago, and I've, sh- I've repeated it a few times, and I'm just going to keep repeating it, uh, and we really leaned into this during the pandemic, and it's simply this, that when you're overwhelmed, what's true is more important than what you feel is true. When you're overwhelmed, what is true is more important than what you feel is true. That's not to say that what you feel is true isn't, re- isn't a real feeling. It's just that what is true is more important. Because sometimes when you're overwhelmed, your feelings will take you in one direction, and the truth might take you in another direction. See, David's still the king in waiting. He was still the one the prophet had anointed. David was still the guy who killed Goliath. David was still the one to whom God had promised, one day you'll be king. Oh, and by the way, from your line, the Messiah is coming. And right now, that future king is hiding in a cave with people out to kill him, and it's scary, and it's dark, and there's not much food, and he's not sure he's going to make it. But, he, but what's true is that he would become king, and God was on his side, but what he felt was true is all is lost. This situation's hopeless. God can't be counted on. God has abandoned me. See, when you get overwhelmed, your feelings hijack what's true. 
So things start out, uh, maybe they look like this. We can show that graphic again, Mark. They look like this. The promise of God is this little tiny thing, right? And the problem is so huge. And well, yeah, I know that. I know what's true, but what if, what if these guys, you know, get into the cave? What if they find me? What if they overpower my guys? What if they're even still out there? What if I lose my job? What if I get downsized? I mean, things are not good. What if the bank forecloses? What if we don't make it? What if she leaves? What if he leaves? What if my kids make some poor choices? What if these tests come back positive? Like, and David looked at his situation in the cave and says, okay, yeah, the promise looks small, but it's actually, let's flip it. And he flipped it. Because God's promise to us is greater than our problem. I know that might sound insensitive, which will probably be the first time I've ever said anything insensitive from this podium, but or a little flippant, but it's still true. The promise of God is bigger than our problem. Sometimes when we see the problem is huge, we get into all of these, you know, well, what if this, and what if that, and what about that, and what if she says, and what if he does, and what if this happens, what if that happens? Like, when we're overwhelmed, our feelings overwhelm our brain. They hijack our brain. And what I've learned about myself is that I can't always trust my feelings. Like, sometimes they're reliable, and I should lean into that, maybe perhaps a little more than I do. And so, but sometimes they're accurate, and sometimes they've warned me of impending danger, and I need to pay attention, but sometimes they're just wrong. Sometimes they're misinterpreting what's actually true. So when we're overwhelmed, we need to pay more attention to what we know to be true than what we feel is true. Now, I know maybe you're going to, uh, you, you want to object to that because maybe you're already dismissing some of that because you're like, well, that's easy for you to say you don't know my problem. Like you don't, if you understood my problem, if you understood like how bad my problem is, it's that big problem. Like you're right, I don't, I'm not there, I'm not in your shoes, I'm not experiencing what you're experiencing. My story is not your story. I get that. And you're like, well, you can't really speak into that because you don't know. What I would say to that is it's not a question of whether or not I can personally identify with your problem. This is about how we see God. It's about what we believe to be true about God. And when we let our problems overwhelm to the point that we're content to hide in the back of a cave and give up. It's at this point where you're overwhelmed. What's true is so much more important than what you feel is true. I don't think anybody in the New Testament knew this better than the Apostle Paul. Paul lived around the time of Jesus. He was probably very young when Jesus was crucified and died and rose again. And then he grew up to uh, just hate these followers of Jesus, just hated them. And in the name of defending Judaism, thinking he was serving God, he made it his life's mission to shut down this fledgling movement that became known as Christianity. That is until one day, and he's on his way to persecute some more Christians, and he met Jesus. And his life is completely changed. And from that day forward, instead of destroying the church, he gave the rest of his days to building the church. But listen, even in his pursuit of God's very clear calling on his life to plant churches, to encourage churches, to spread the gospel, to write all these letters that became part of the New Testament that we've kind of built our lives around, even with all that, Paul had circumstances just like David that felt completely overwhelming at times. He just felt completely overwhelmed. 
And he had every right to feel completely overwhelmed because if you were in his situation, you'd feel completely overwhelmed too. And in one passage in particular, he explains how overwhelmed he is and how bad his circumstances are. Because while he was planting these churches and encouraging and instructing churches, he got into a lot of trouble, like trouble with the Roman officials, trouble with the Jewish leaders. He landed in jail over and over. He was beaten and left for dead. But he loved Jesus so much, and Jesus changed his life so dramatically. He said, I'm going to keep going because the love of God that I've come to know is something I want the whole world to know and experience. And in the middle of all the challenges that he faced, he had these other rival, we don't, we don't hear a lot about this, but if you read the, 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 the New Testament, you'll see he, had, he was up against these false teachers who had false motives. And he'd get lumped in with these other people. And they'd gathered such a following and spread so much disinformation and, and bad theology on top of that. When they'd come to visit the churches that Paul had either planted or helped along the way, they would put Paul down and try to discredit him. So he's like, well, I got to respond to this. So I can just imagine if Twitter was a thing in the New Testament, it would have been an awesome thread to follow. But he, he responds with this kind of tongue-in-cheek, and this is what he has to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He's talking about these false teachers. He says, are they servants of Christ? He's like, I'm a better one. You want to play that game? I'll play the game. Here's how the game works. He says, I know I sound like a madman. In other words, I don't usually talk like this, and he doesn't. He's like, but let me show you the good things I did for Jesus. And then he gives us kind of this resume of, of the kind of problems he's faced. He says, I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped more times than I can count, faced death again and again. All these false teachers, these lesser authorities, they, the guys who are putting me down and trying to discredit me, they've been into jail too, but I've been to jail more. Like maybe they've been beaten perhaps, but I've been beaten more. I've been left for dead. He's like, he says, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys, faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty, and I've often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Now, if, that were, if any of that were us, I was like, just pick one thing on the list, okay? If that was us, how would we be feeling? I know how I'd be feeling. I'd be like, God, trying to serve you here, not going very well. I mean, like I'm cold. <laughs> That'd be my thing. I don't know. It's one thing. Why couldn't you give me a cushy assignment? Thanks for calling me and trust me with all this. Why couldn't you give me a cushy assignment? Like maybe in a country in the 21st century with religious liberties. That would be great. Could I have that? Because I'm sure that must be what you really want for me. I mean, what's the deal? How else am I supposed to thrive as a Jesus follower? How am I supposed to be a light in the darkness when I'm surrounded by darkness? Oh, yeah. Right? Right? I mean, surely, like you can see, God, this is not going very well. I am overwhelmed. Like, what am I doing wrong? What am I missing here? I thought it was pretty clear on this calling thing. Like, you, this voice came out of heaven and knocked me off my donkey, and then I couldn't see for a few days, and it seemed very clear to me what I was to do. Not everyone has an experience like that. Like, you showed up, and you called me by name. It was pretty clear what I was to do. But I'm not sure this is working out, so what's going on? 
Now, if Paul felt this way, it's pretty clear to us looking back that Paul was exactly where God needed him to be, doing what God had called him to do, living out the calling and purpose of God on his life. So if Paul experienced setbacks and challenges and trials and overwhelming circumstances while he was doing exactly what God was leading him to do, then I think in kind of an unexpected way, this could be a source of hope and encouragement for us. Because I think Paul knew that when you're overwhelmed, what's true is more important than what you feel is true. And he knew his feelings had the potential to lead him to a very different place than where he wanted to be, and perhaps a different place than where God was leading him to be. So he learned to focus on what is true. And often after being beaten and after being in prison and after being betrayed, he would write letters. And one of the letters he wrote uh, after an episode like that we know as the book of Romans. And he asked this question, Now, when you know the rest of the story and you know the background, this makes a lot more sense, but he says, do you think anything can ever separate us from God's love? And if we'd been one of his original readers not knowing the whole story, we might be tempted to say, well, you know what, if, if I were beaten, if I were thrown into prison, if I had hardships like you've described, Paul, I would say, you know, if you're in jail, maybe, you know, because you're trying to serve God, maybe it would be fair to assume that God has abandoned you. So you, maybe you've got a point there. But Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to focus on what I feel is true. I'm going to focus on what I know is true. So he writes this in Romans 8, verse 35. Can anything separate us from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And most of us would say, well, um, like... Maybe that's, well, I don't know, maybe some of you are saying that's why I don't believe in God at all. Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking that's why I don't find God to be that trustworthy, you know, because like I've had all these things, you know, or like a tenth of that at least, or maybe I've had a taste of some of that, and I'm pretty convinced God isn't real, and if he is, he doesn't love me, and he's not good. Verse 38, Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. I'm convinced of this, not because of what's going on around me, not because of my circumstances. No, because I'm I'm going to focus, I'm not going to focus on how I feel. I'm going to focus on what I know is true. I'm not going to focus on what I feel is true in the moment in these circumstances. I'm going to focus on what I know to be true about God and about life. He says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. I love that. Nor even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Verse 39, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the Apostle Paul, in prison, beaten, bloody, hungry, tired, cold, overwhelmed, doesn't focus on what he feels is true in the moment, but on what is true. And what's true is more important than what we feel is true. If we can hang on to that, if we can keep that front and center and in focus, about my marriage, you know, but my kids, but my boss, but my coworkers, but my finances, but I got this health thing, but the economy, but politics, America's going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, I'm overwhelmed. When you're overwhelmed, what's true is more important 
than what you feel is true. Because sometimes our feelings are reliable and sometimes they're not. And they're always affected and influenced by our circumstances. And it's the scripture that leads us to what is true. I don't know, your circumstances and your feelings may tell you something different, but God has not abandoned you. God knows what you're dealing with. He knows. God knows. God cares. God still loves you. There is hope. And you can have peace in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. So what is true is more important than what you feel is true. So what do we do with this? Let's start with this. This week, let's take note, pay attention to when we're leaning into what we feel is true. Pay attention to that. Learn to identify it. And and, and you'll find yourself more inclined to lean into what you feel is true when you're overwhelmed by circumstances. But let's learn, let's begin to discipline our thinking and our awareness to see it happening. It's it's not that hard to do if we'll just be intentional about that. It's kind of the easy part. The hard part is shifting our focus away from what we feel and bringing our, our minds back to what is actually true. And so much of the time, the most effective way to get clarity, the most effective way to bring this into the light is to get the input of others. And specifically, other growing followers of Jesus your brothers and sisters who know you but are far enough removed from your circumstances to bring clarity, who will bring the truth of Scripture into the fog of your feelings around your circumstances. So at the most basic level, here's what we know is true. One, you have a Heavenly Father who loves you. Two, today, no matter how overwhelming life is, today isn't the end of the story. And you don't have to like the part of the story you're in. Because number three, there is hope. When you're overwhelmed, what is true is more important than what you feel is true. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for stories like David's and Paul's that are so real, so honest, so human. Thank you that the people we read about in the Bible weren't just people with these charmed lives, that they ended up in caves and hungry and destitute and imprisoned and beaten and sometimes we're doing the right thing. Help us understand that their lives are more like our lives than we can see sometimes. Father, sometimes life can just be overwhelming. For some of us, it's a season. Some, for some of us, we're pretty overwhelmed pretty regularly. Help us this week to begin to focus on what we know is true rather than what we feel is true to be aware of that in the moment when we're drawn towards what we're feeling about a circumstance. Thank you that your word can help us see and understand what is true. So today, Father, if there's one truth that we can grab onto, 
I pray that every one of us in this room would know that you love us. That there's a God who loves us in the midst of suffering. There's a God who loves us in the midst of our overwhelm. I pray that everyone who feels overwhelmed today, that they would be reassured, that they, you would just speak into their lives, that there is hope, that they're not alone, that their story is still being written.